Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. I'm Andrew. That's what Dustin said. Hopefully it's not a little bit, didn't blow your ears out just now. But it's an honor to be here with you all tonight. Usually I'm the, I get to do announcements, uh, and I enjoy uh, just being able uh, to keep our vision before you. Uh, but it's always uh, a joy of mine and honor to be able to uh, teach from God's Word, it's something I really enjoy doing. Uh, and it's something that I am totally reliant on God to do. And so I uh, just want to invite you uh, with me tonight that as we jump into, into the Word, uh, that even now that you would be praying, uh, that that God would give you ears to hear, uh, just that I would, I'm praying, like as I'm up here, I've been praying that God uh, would give me not only clarity uh, and calmness that I'm up here, but that he would stir me with affection for, for Christ and that he would help me even now to believe uh, the, the word that we have before us. And so that's what we need tonight is, you know, Dustin's already said we're, uh, we're in Hebrews 11 tonight, and that's famously called Hall of Faith. And uh, word faith is probably in that chapter a hundred times. I didn't count. But uh, tonight's all about faith. It's a pretty important topic. Uh, and so with that, I'll just kind of uh, jump right in. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, there to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we've been uh, out of Hebrews for a few weeks. We had a panel last week. Uh, and before that, we were in uh, the Gospel of Luke briefly. Uh, but we're back tonight. And so as we already said, topic's faith. Uh, but more importantly, I want to note that we are going to be talking about a particular type of faith, not merely a set of uh, religious beliefs and practices or a spiritually sensitive approach to, a, to the good life, but the type of faith that is said in the Bible to be the only means of pleasing God, and it is said to be the key to becoming partic- excuse me, recipients of the forgiveness that has been purchased for us by Jesus and the inheritance of eternal life and all the glorious promises that we've been reading about. We've seen that uh, early in Hebrews that there still remains a day of God's rest that we are invited into. Uh, that remains to be had uh, when we hear God by faith. We believe that it says in Hebrews, it says that as the Holy Spirit says, continues to quote the Old Testament, that we believe that each time we open God's word, we are able, uh, he speaks to us today. He still bears witness uh, concerning Christ, concerning himself, that we might know him. Um, And that is the sort of faith uh, which we will be talking about tonight. Um, And according to the Bible, uh, eternal life depends on our having a particular sort of faith. So it's really pretty important, I would say, uh, that we get this one right. Um, And I'm really grateful that this section is in our Bibles. Uh, Popularly, there are are a lot of notions um, of what faith is. Anthony Henderson and I, he's not here tonight, but uh, we were talking the other night as I was preparing for this, um, and he brought up a philosophy of faith that's known as Pascal's Wager. Um, I hadn't heard of it by that name, but I was familiar with sort of the philosophy of it. And Pascal's wager uh, essentially makes the case that being a Christian can be boiled down uh, to a wager of risk and reward. It says that if Christians are right and there is a God, uh, then we have eternal life to gain. If Christians are wrong and there is no God or eternal life, then we at least were able to find meaning in our short lives. On the other hand, this argument says that if, there are, if atheists, for example, are right and there is no God, then they neither risked anything nor gained anything. If they are wrong, though, then there is literally hell to pay. 
So uh, maybe you're familiar with that kind of philosophy. You maybe have heard that. Uh, perhaps it's even appealed to you. And I think that uh, this wager, uh, that there are, there are likely Christians who have adopted this notion of faith, uh, thinking perhaps that it is simply uh, the most reasonable approach to life, that merely wagering that God exists and living with some respect to that possibility would prove sufficient uh, in the end for becoming an heir to the salvation which we know comes through faith. Truthfully, uh, while this logic may prove a comforting and easy way to dispel our own doubts about, like maybe we've considered in our lives, like what, is this actually worth it? Like what we're doing, like what I'm spending my life for, is it worth it to live a life devoted to Christ? And so this notion of saving faith as merely being a safe, reasonable, logical bet uh, can be comforting, but it, it frankly doesn't accord with what we see in God's word. It doesn't accord with the kingdom of God, which Jesus described uh, in the Gospels as being like treasure hidden in a field. He says that when a, a man found in uh, this field, he covers it up, that treasure. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's how Jesus describes the kingdom uh, and the sort of, of reaction that is appropriate uh, to a discovery of that nature. It's not, uh, it's not about risk and reward. It's not about what's reasonable uh, or perhaps mitigating the consequences of being wrong. Um, so let's see what God's word then has to say about faith. So to kind of jump into contextualizing our, our passage tonight, um, we've already said we're in Hebrews 11. Uh, tonight we will only be looking at the first three verses, so just verses one through three. With the Old Testament survey, you, you perhaps have heard of, of uh, chapter 11. It's famous as this sort of like survey of the whole Old Testament. It's, it starts with this formula over and over again, like by faith, by faith, and it goes through chronologically a lot of the key figures of the Old Testament uh, and what they had accomplished through faith. That's a survey next week. Uh, but my goal for tonight is for us to lay a foundation. I've titled this sermon Foundation, if you're a note taker. Uh, but tonight, we're laying a foundation of what the Bible means when it talks about faith and what Christians mean by the phrase saving faith. And so uh, the Bible, you know, aside from this, this is actually what I would say to be the most uh, technical definition that we see in the Bible of faith. Faith is spoken about an innumerable amount of times in the New Testament. It's actually only mentioned uh, in the ESV. I believe it's only mentioned uh, in the word, English word faith uh, once. Uh, it's, it's there in that. It's quoted in Habakkuk in, the, in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Uh, some versions have it a few more times, but it, it seriously starts to pop up uh, in the New Testament. Um, but that is where we have come to tonight, and that's sort of uh, what we're grateful for is that the Bible does here in Hebrews 11 give us uh, a deep dive into this definition of what constitutes faith. Um, many of us, like I've said, are probably familiar with this. It's easy to see why it's popular. It's pretty difficult to read through the chapter without just getting pumped up and uh, wanting to go, I just, you know, punch a lion or something. Like you read through like all the things we see in the Old Testament that, uh, that men and women were able to accomplish through faith. And it, it really does uh, have the effect of inspiring um, and contextually, I think it's fair to say that part of the author's intention for this chapter, it was to inspire uh, the audience, and I think it's done very effectively. It leads, this chapter, chapter 11, leads into the climax of the book of Hebrews. It's going to be more fully realized in chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 12, uh, and we see what the author intends to inspire the audience to do in the preceding chapter, starting in verse 35. So look back with me briefly at uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 35. It says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It says this, for you have need of endurance. That's what he wants 
to, to communicate to the audience here, like you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So uh, the audience has grown sluggish. Uh, chapter 5, it's the last sermon I had preached in this book, uh, addressed it more particularly that they had grown dull of hearing. They weren't able uh, to, to sort of digest the meatier things of the faith. Like the author wants to explore the depths and the riches of the wisdom of Christ, uh, but this, this people has... Uh, they have need of endurance, he says. Uh, they've grown sluggish. They're, they need, in a sense, to be, they need to relay the foundations because they aren't prepared uh, for the meatiness that he would like to bring. And he does eventually go on to bring it. But that's contextually what leads us in to chapter 11. He, he thinks that they are at risk. He knows they're at risk of throwing away their confidence in the gospel by neglecting to have faith. He identifies a lack of faith as the root of sluggish lives that are at the risk of giving up. They need to endure for a little while when Christ will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so here's how we pop into chapter 11 with the word uh, and faith. In chapter 11, the author is demonstrating uh, what we, he admonished the audience to do in 1025. In 1025, he says that they are to, uh, to encourage one another. So in this text tonight, he, he wishes to impart the courage his audience needs uh, and lay a proper foundation for them to run the race set before them with endurance. And he does so by writing on the topic of faith as demonstrated throughout all of Scripture. He wants them to have faith, and he wants to have them to have a particular sort of faith at that. So enter chapter 11. Um, let's go ahead and read verse 1. It says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So right off the bat, we see uh, that the author provides a, a pretty functional uh, two-part definition of faith. He says first that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and that it is the conviction of things not seen. So this is a, uh, you can imagine how significant this passage is in our understanding of faith. But before we dive into assurance and conviction, like those two particular words, uh, I think there are two things that are being assumed in the text grammatically at this point. So first is the object of faith. Uh, things hoped for, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's not stated explicitly in the text because it's assumed by the audience. But when we, when we speak of the object of faith biblically, that refers chiefly to God and to all that he has promised. When we have faith, what it means to have faith, we are believing first in God, and subsequently we come to know him, though we cannot see him, because he has spoken to us and revealed himself to us through Jesus, which we see in Hebrews chapter 1. In the very beginning verse, it goes on to say that uh, in days of old he has spoken to us uh, and to our fathers, first to the prophets and in the present day, through his son, Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Faith is to know God through Jesus, whom he sent, and to believe and to wait for that which he has promised. So that's the first thing is the object of faith. And the second assumption we see in the text grammatically is the nature of faith's object, that he and his promises are as of yet unseen, and his promises are as of yet not realized. They're not fulfilled but this will not be forever. Romans 8, 24 and 25 say it very clearly. It says, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The nature of faith's object, which is God and his promises, they are unseen, meaning it cannot be perceived by our bodily eyes or by merely human reasoning and human wisdom. Uh, two things right off the bat. The nature of faith, uh, excuse me, the object of faith, which is God and the things he has promised in his word, and then the, the, the nature of faith's object, which is that it's imperceptible to the human eye and to human reasoning. The goal of any faith which has its foundation, remember we're talking about foundation, what our faith is built upon, as anything which has faith as its foundation, the foundation of the faith as human reasoning and wisdom and not the word and the power of God, the, the, the goal of that sort of faith ultimately is just to glorify us. We spoke of Pascal's uh, wager. We, we're attracted to reasoning like that because it, it really requires no risk. And the conclusion is that uh, we are actually just really smart people making an obvious uh, bet with infinite reward and no significant consequences for being wrong. So uh, I will like, say as a brief aside here, like, by all means, like, strengthen your faith uh, and uh, with your whole mind. Employ your whole mind to strengthen your faith. Study apologetics. Study philosophy. Engage with different worldviews. Learn as much as you can. I'm fully convinced uh, that, as a, that a Christian can engage with the best that human learning and reasoning has to offer without fear of that discrediting or invalidating our faith. I think that it has incredible value for strengthening our faith. Uh, Christians aren't just anti-intellectuals begging people to just ignore everything except the Bible and just keep it at the Bible so that we don't accidentally figure out that it's all fake. Uh, but as for foundations, it's incredibly important that our foundation for, what we, for our faith uh, is never um, human reasoning uh, or it, we don't let it be justified by how many good arguments are out there proving uh, that we are rational and that our beliefs are the most pragmatic. Uh, this is a, a frail foundation that's doomed to crumble. We want our faith to be built upon and justified by the word and the power of God. He has spoken, and we, we are to believe as he has said. Uh, we are not foremost to, uh, to build our faith upon human reasoning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And here's why. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the ground floor of what it means to have faith. It is first to call to believe in God, whom we do not see. And it's secondly uh, to trust him and the unchangeable nature of his promises, which we've seen detailed throughout chapter, uh, excuse me, the whole book of Hebrews. And I think at this point, like, this raises a question, like, a critical question. Like, we don't see God. If we don't see God, how do we come, how does anyone come to have faith in him? Besides coming to believe that there is a God, how can we know the God or anything about his will, his attributes, uh, and perhaps most importantly, like, where do we stand? If there's a God, like, where do we stand with him? Are we merely to infer faith by observing the natural world? Are we to intuit God's character and attributes by looking around us and searching deep within us in hopes that he might have created us with some innate sense of who he is? The fact of the matter is that natural observation, human reasoning and philosophy, and internal reflection can only take us as far as to suppose that the existence of a creator God is highly plausible. But these uh, faculties alone... Uh, we have 
by these faculties alone, we have no hope of gaining any substantive knowledge of God, much less coming to understand who he is in particular as a personal God, what his will is, and we, and we would have absolutely no grounds for confidence in our standing before him. So in other words, the author of Hebrews, he couldn't speak of assurance of faith or conviction in relationship to faith if we are meant to merely infer or to intuit God by employing our natural faculties, uh, which leads us to the important truth that humans are incapable of discovering God. We have to understand that 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 we should come to know God is entirely reliant upon him revealing himself to us. Seeing that he is invisible uh, and that we have no bridge to him that we might understand him, there's nothing in nature by which we could come to understand his will or his purposes. Uh, We are entirely reliant upon the grace of God to reveal himself to us. Human beings are incapable of discovering God uh, by our own faculties. So how then, uh, Paul asks in the letter of Romans, how are we to believe in him of whom we have never, uh, excuse me, neither heard nor seen? And the answer that the book of Hebrews provides is actually, like we've already pointed uh, to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. It says in the first verses in chapter one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It's a sort of shorthand for all of what the Old Testament testifies about. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And what I think stands out to me here uh, is God spoke. It's like the defining action uh, of the text is that God spoke. And is one of the, I think one of the most unrecognized in our lives, for myself anyways, one of the greatest but most unrecognized graces and mercies Uh, that we have ever been shown. Left to ourselves, we are blind, we are living in darkness with no hope of knowing God or our relationship to him. But God spoke. Formerly through the prophets or or uh, all that has been testified of in the Old Testament, uh, and presently he speaks, uh, note the tense, like it says, presently he speaks through his son, Jesus, who is himself the incarnation of God. Hebrews says uh, he is the exact imprint of his nature. And the more, more to the point in this context, Jesus is the word of God. He is the image of the invisible or the imageless God, as Colossians 1 puts it. So while natural inference, intuition, and philosophy, I think that these all have an excellent role in strengthening our faith. The foundation of our faith is what God himself has revealed about himself, which is what we have in his word. The fullest picture of his self-revelation is Jesus, of whom the scriptures all testify, which is what the whole survey about, uh, is about next week, that God has revealed himself uh, all throughout the Old Testament, and the crux of his self-revelation is Christ, who is his own incarnation. So now, now, now that we've sort of laid this groundwork for what is being assumed in the text, we can move on to the particularities of uh, what the author says, assurance of and conviction. Um, and I'm excited about this part. So I, I spent a lot of time... Uh, in my preparation of this sermon, mulling over uh, what it means for faith to be, quote, the assurance of things hoped for. It says that faith is the, the assurance of things hoped for. And so originally, I kind of glossed over it, uh, which can be the case when we're overly familiar with the text. And it seemed apparent to me that the meaning was that having faith gives us assurance, or that to have faith is to be confident in the things hoped for. Uh, but I, I just kept coming back. I couldn't shake the, the use of the word is in our English translation, that faith is 
the assurance. It doesn't say that it is a source of assurance or that it gives us assurance. It says that it is assurance. And I want to be clear, I actually do believe like Hebrews does speak in this way in other places. Chapter 6, verse 11 says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance, I hope, until the end. And then in 1022, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So in both of these instances, it is my opinion that the most natural reading of assurance of faith or assurance of hope is something akin to being confident and assured of our standing before God uh, because of our faith and what he has accomplished in Christ. God's word, I, I do believe God's word wants us to be confident of our standing before God through faith in what Christ has done. Uh, it's meant to give us security. Uh, but I don't think that Hebrews 11.1 1 here is necessarily saying that same thing, or at least that it's not saying just uh, that. I think it perhaps is saying a little bit more. Uh, and I, I went to compare uh, different translations of this text, and I, I looked over to the uh, Christian Standard Bible and then to the, um, uh, the KJV, and here's what the CSB says. It says, Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. And then the King James reads, faith is the substance of things hoped for. So, like, when I was reading that, like, what in the world does it mean to say that faith is the substance or the reality of what is hoped for? Or to, or to say something, uh, and, and how does this, does this say something uh, more than just being confident before God. Not that that's something little. Uh, I, th- I think one, one thing I would propose tonight is I, I believe it is to say that faith is more, I, I certainly believe that faith is more than a moral virtue that we possess, uh, and it's more than merely assenting uh, intellectually to what has been revealed and declared in the gospel. Uh, faith isn't this one-dimensional thing that we possess by which we, we come to a position in which we are intellectually in agreement with what the gospel declares, that we we affirm the existence of a God, that we affirm uh, what Christ has done on the cross, and that, that we, we don't have uh, any rejections, perhaps, to the claims of, of the gospel. I, don't, I think that faith can't be any less than that. You certainly can't reject uh, that there is a God who has redeemed us through Christ. Uh, but I think we tend to kind of make it one-dimensional and think that faith is merely intellectually um, assenting. But I think that what we see here, we begin to see as we compare these different translations and we see the idea of faith being the substance of things hoped for, the reality of what it's up for, that it begins to take uh, a fuller picture of what biblical faith is. And I, I want you to just, just kind of sit in silence uh, and think about this statement for a moment. Just kind of let it blow your mind. Uh, I think the text, let's put this text up on the screen, Tony, and just stare at this text on your screen or on your Bible uh, and just think about it for a moment and try to understand. Uh, maybe you're not reading out of, I, hope, I mean, I, I'm not reading out of the KJV or the CSB, but uh, read, just consider the phrase or the statement, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Just think about that for a minute. I just, as I mulled over that, um, I, I just was confounded as I considered it. Like, what in the world could this mean? Uh, and I actually, I found one proposed solution. It was actually... Uh, turned out that there was some disagreement about this over the years and that this is sort of reflected uh, in the translations, like the different translations we see. And that the proposal that I would make tonight uh, is that faith, figuratively speaking, incarnates God's promises in part in our present life. That faith incarnates, figuratively speaking, God's promises in our present lives. And I think we're going to see this explosively uh, in the text next week, and I'm really excited about that. 
but I just want you to consider what that means. So faith in God and in his promises actually bursts or substantiates those promises into our lives in part now, not as a matter of spiritualized perspective that helps us think more positively, not as a means of manifesting our best lives now by securing riches and success, but as a matter of the actual resurrection power of God interfering and breaking in uh, to our world to, in part, give us full assurance and to strengthen us to endure all things. Faith is the substance of things so forth, the reality of things so forth. I think we begin to see this unraveled all throughout the New Testament. Look at Galatians 2.20 with me. Note the tenses. Just think about the, t- the, the tenses that Paul is using here. I have been crucified with Christ, past tense. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives, present tense, in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, 4, and six, 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, past tense, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us, past tense, up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have, past tense, died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How in the world can Paul speak this way in the scriptures? How can he say that we have been crucified, that we have been raised, that we are seated at the right hand of God? I presently, uh, I don't feel, uh, perhaps I don't look seated at the right hand of God. I don't feel as though my life uh, perhaps is, is in, uh, in Christ right now at the right hand of God. But I think what we're seeing is the explosive uh, multidimensional nature of faith that when we believe in the word of God, when we build our faith upon that foundation, we point our faith at Jesus, that his promises, which are chronologically, historically in the future, like they wouldn't be promises if they were fulfilled. They would be realities uh, for us now. But it is a reality. It is a promise that Christ has made that he is going to return to uh, save those who are eagerly waiting for us, that we are going to be raised to new life and seated with him in the heavenly places, uh, and that all things will be made new. It's not, it's not chronologically. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, but somehow, in faith, we can speak of these things as though they are already happening. Uh, one, because we are so confident. We are greatly assured of these things because God, his nature is unchangeable. His, the nature of his, of his promises are unchangeable, and he who promised is faithful. And so we can be assured so confidently that these things will come to pass, that we can begin living now as though they were true, and not merely propositionally, but the, the power of God works in faith to substantiate his promises in our lives now. And I'm not going to try to make you understand what that means, because I have, we don't know uh, what that means. But we, what we know is that we can speak with Paul that we have been raised with Christ, and that is uh, brimming with resurrection power. Uh, we, can, uh, we can be so confidently assured of the, of the unchanging nature of God's promises that we can, that it bursts into our lives. Like I've been sticking with, I've been reflecting on the image that we see in uh, Hebrews, that Hebrews speaks a lot about the tabernacle uh, and the temple, that you have the most holy place, the, the, the holy place 
uh, and then the outer temple, and that only the high priest can go into the most holy place, and only once a year. But that was just a copy of the true substance, which is in heaven, the true reality of these things. And in the true reality, Christ has gone into the most holy place once and for all. Uh, it's behind this curtain, and we enter into the, the, the space outside of that through the curtain of his flesh. Like We come to it by faith, and we haven't yet gone into the most holy place. Christ has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf. Uh, we're waiting to go into the most holy places. But this image of just like by faith, like the realities of the most holy place are, are bursting out of that. That as we live in faith in the promises of God and, and in Christ, uh, we are able uh, mysteriously, uh, I want you guys to be comfortable with that word in regards to our faith at times. Like it, God is unseen. Uh, there is much that he has revealed that we can know him. He has revealed himself to us in Christ, but there is much that we have yet to understand. Paul says it's like looking at a mirror dimly lit. We perceive now in part, but then we will see face to face. There won't be faith in heaven. There won't be hope. Who hopes for what he has seen? Uh, but in the present, we, we have faith. We have hope in the promises of God. Uh, and even now, like, we get these small glimpses, uh, but they, it's, I just want you to consider that, to ponder that, and to let that drive you to worship tonight. Like, we need that sort of faith. I think it's, it, it fails in my life uh, to reflect in how I pray. Uh, I was speaking with somebody today that uh, I think a, a primary preoccupation of a Christian who, is, who has faith is eager longing. Uh, and that ought to be specifically reflected in how we pray. Like, I ought to be praying. Like, I ought to want uh, to go into the heavenly places where Christ is. I ought to want to see the fulfillment of all of his promises. And I certainly do. Uh, but I don't always uh, set my eyes upon that. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews uh, is admonishing us to do. That's why he says, like, you have need of endurance. Uh, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Uh, so that's, that's the application from that particular part. I want you to ponder that mystery, uh, that we, by faith, are not simply affirming a set of religious belief. We're certainly, we are affirming uh, what the Bible says to be true. Uh, but more than that, uh, we are so assured of these promises uh, that miraculously, by the power of God, as we have faith, uh, the resurrection power of God is, is outboard uh, into our lives now. I don't understand the mechanics of that. Uh, I can't wait to understand it one day. Um, the truth, this truth helps us to understand. Uh, it's not just ascending to realities proposed in the Bible or in the gospel. Uh, it certainly isn't less. Uh, I did read one author who wrote about it in this way. Faith is the, quote, firm persuasion and expectation that God will perform all that he has promised to us in Christ. And then he says, this persuasion gives us the soul, excuse me, gives the soul to enjoy those things now. And then it gives them a substance uh, or reality in the soul by the first fruits and the foretastes of them. That's how scripture speaks of it, that we enjoy now the first fruits of the spirit. Uh, we haven't yet gotten to the full feast. So let's move on now uh, to the second part of this uh, functional definition. So faith is the assurance, uh, the substance, the reality of things not for, and then the conviction of things not seen. Continuing uh, now, we read that uh, it's the conviction, and then I actually compared this as well with the KJV and the CSB, and, and the KJV renders it evidence of things not seen. So ESV, the conviction of what is not seen, the evidence of what is not seen, and then the CSB, the proof of what is not seen. And so again, I was like, oh, these don't seem uh, the same necessarily. I, I think that, that there is a way to interpret them, that they are in agreement. Uh, but it certainly caught my eye. Like to read evidence, or excuse me, uh, in the ESV, the conviction of things not seen. Or initially, I'm thinking 
Uh, most obviously, that means uh, that we are firmly convicted uh, of the reality of the things that we believe. And that's certainly true. Like, we ought to be uh, convicted of the reality of things to believe. But there, there's a, a more full dimension, I think, to the, to the translation, evidence of things not seen and proof uh, of what is not seen. And it certainly implies a little bit more. Uh, but more than just being sure of the object of our faith, the question, of course, is what does it mean uh, for faith to be evidence or proof of God uh, and of all that is imperceivable to the bodily eye? Certainly it doesn't mean uh, that faith is uh, in the fulfillment of God's promises somehow proves those unseen and unfulfilled promises as though us merely having faith in them is itself a justification for the reality as only the fulfillment of those promises would actually prove it in the sense of the word. But as a grace from God, faith founded upon the word, aimed at Jesus, is able to convince the mind and the will of the reality of the things unseen, such that we can live in, a way, live in such a way as though they were seen. And again, we're going to see this in action in the OT. Uh, OT I wrote that in my notes. Old Testament, I meant to say the, the full hand for that the Old Testament survey next week, but suffice to say for now that this sort of faith enables us to endure all things. It's why, why does faith, what does faith have anything to do uh, with, with uh, not growing weary or running the race, enduring? This sort of faith enables us to endure all things and to suffer the loss of all things. Why? Because we have our eyes and hope set on something to come which is greater and which cannot be taken away. Uh, one of my favorite verses from next week's passage that I, I'll just briefly glimpse at uh, pertains to Moses. And it says in verse 26 of chapter 11, uh, uh, 27, excuse me. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The faith of, of Moses in that instance is so poignant that it, it was as though he, had, he was seeing the invisible God. And that is the faith which is made accessible to us by the grace of God. Uh, so it is certainly true. Faith is the conviction of things not seen, and there's a weight to that. Like to be, con- like to have conviction concerning something is we're not tossed to and fro by every wave of dissent or philosophy with that thing. Uh, but I think more full dimensionally, uh, it's the conviction of those things, and it's also an evidence to us that by grace, uh, when we cling to to the Word and when we set our eyes on Christ, uh, the transformative nature of the Spirit's work in our lives is to is it. He gives us these, these glimpses, I think, such that we are able uh, to endure as seeing that which is invisible. It's a, an amazing grace from God that we get to enjoy in our faith. It becomes an evidence and a proof to us about, of the things about which we are convicted. So in light of this, um, we need to be vigilant about our heart's posture towards the gospel and the realities that are established in Jesus. So possible, so easy uh, for the deceitfulness of sin to harden our hearts and diminish our faith, causing us to become unbelieving and to waver in our conviction. Uh, and I don't, you know, I want to speak grace to you tonight as well. I, I hope uh, I'm not coming off in such a way that uh, if you've experienced doubt, that if you don't have absolute firm conviction concerning all things at all times, uh, that uh, you're not a Christian. Uh, certainly I experienced doubt, and uh, this is one of the things that we must endure, that we endure uh, weakness uh, even pertaining, of course, to our own faith. We're not sustained by our own strength. Even our faith is sustained by him who is the author of our faith. Uh, and, but I do mean to say that like, when we, we need to be vigilant concerning our attitude about the realities in the gospel, I become passive concerning them. I become 
uh, unbelieving at times. Not that I would not affirm their, their reality, but that I, I begin to live in such a way that I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't confidently expect them. Uh, and that um, robs me of the opportunity to participate in the powerful work of God now. And so uh, that's, that's an application we see in this text is that we need to be vigilant about our hearts' postures towards those and, and be on guard against the deceitfulness of sin uh, to harden our hearts. Um, the effect of this is that we, when, we, when this happens is that we begin to grow sluggish and distracted uh, and we would have need of endurance. So we need to look to Jesus. We can repent when our sin breeds unbelief and trust that Jesus will strengthen us to endure the race. Continuing on in Hebrews 11, now to verse 2. Read verse 2 with me. It says, For by it, the faith, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is sort of a summer, uh, summarizing prelude of what we will see fleshed out in the rest of the chapter. But what the author says is that it is this sort of faith, faith founded on the word, aimed at Jesus, so deeply assured and convicted of the things as yet unseen that it causes the possessor to live as though the things were actually in sight and substantiated, is the exact sort of faith which every person whom God has ever approved and commended in the Old Testament possessed. This is the sort of faith they possessed. And it is for this faith that they were commended. It's not a Pascal's wager. Uh, this is the safest, most reasonable bet type faith. Uh, but a faith which has heard God speak through his word and has not only believed what he has said to be true, but has treasured it up. Uh, and being completely assured and convicted of it has banked everything on it, becoming obedient to it and willing to suffer unspeakably for it and to lose everything. Their faith was the sort of faith which so completely trusted in the faithfulness of God could remind ourselves that we're not trying to buck ourselves up to have a moral attribute of faith uh, so that we can do big things. Like our faithfulness is aimed at, or our, our faith is aimed at Jesus and his faithfulness. We are confident not of our own strength, but of the faithfulness of God. The sort of faith is so uh, completely confident in the faithfulness of God and his power to save and to fulfill all that he has spoken, that it gave them the strength to endure all things. If you read the Old Testament, like there was a lot <laughs> that was endured by a lot of people. Uh, collectively, like Israel suffered a lot, uh, a lot from their own sin, some from, from, from not from their own sin. Uh, and then there were men in particular, women in particular, who, who suffered greatly. Some were thrown into a fire. Uh, we're going to see this more. Uh, but they had the strength to endure all, all things, not because they were upright moral men, but because they had faith in the unchangeable nature of God and his promises and endured as seeing him who was invisible. This is the sort of faith that we must have if we desire to endure in our fight with sin and faithfulness, excuse me, uh, with sin and faithlessness and to be commended by God to the preservation of our souls. We will not be commended by God for anything short of faith, not good deeds, not being a value-centered monotheist, not having the right opinions and postures about every injustice happening in the world all at once, not being theologically articulate, not being well thought of by others, not becoming highly moral and ethical. None of these things will commend us to God and atone for our sins. We are commended to God by faith in Jesus and in his resurrection, by which Jesus pleased God on our behalf, and he atoned for our sins, becoming the author and the perfecter of our faith. That let's turn to the last verse tonight, verse three. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So this is, of course, uh, a reference to what we read in the creation account in Genesis 1 through 3. It's the very beginning of your Bibles, uh, wherein we learn that all things that were created 
uh, visible and invisible, were created at the word of God, that he was there when nothing was there and he spoke all things. Um, it is testified there in God's word, Genesis 1 through 3, all things were created by his word. Um, and this too, we see here, depends on faith and not on sight or mere reasoning. The verse also serves as a prelude to the Old Testament chronological survey of faith that we will experience next week. But you'll notice, though, that in this first instance of the by faith formula, so it starts there in verse 3, like by faith we understand. Uh, that's repeated a lot. But notice uh, that following by faith, uh, it says we in this particular verse. It doesn't say by faith Abraham or, or insert a name. It says we. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Um, in laying a foundation for what biblical faith is, we are here challenged and invited to accept the first claim of God's word with faith. And this is that God is the creator and he is the sustainer of all things. Before we can deal uh, with anything which God has spoken throughout scripture, uh, we must first deal with this and we can only approach it by faith. I could stand up here, uh, or probably more rather, I can invite Ben up here to lay out a really awesome uh, apologetic argument for why uh, creationism is the only logical explanation for the existence of the cosmos and of, and of biological life. And I think those arguments are incredibly insightful. They're useful for strengthening our faith. Uh, however, I'm, I'm not interested in approaching uh, the fundamental claim that God has created all things by the word of his mouth uh, like a wager. Like we're just interested in finding the most reasonable thing to affirm that we are reasonable, logical people doing reasonable, logical things. I don't want us to wager that Genesis 1 through 3 is the most logical way to understand existence. No one was there <laughs> when nothing was there except God, according to his word. And he has testified that all things were created at his word. And our only option for understanding is to believe him in faith or to reject God's word. It's the option. Like We, we take God at his word. We don't wait for the evidence, uh, although certainly I don't think you're going to find evidence that God didn't create the, the universe uh, and you probably won't find any that he, that he certainly absolutely did. We weren't there. There's no data to be collected. It was invisible to us. It's imperceivable. Uh, we understand this first claim of the Bible uh, by faith. It's the only way to approach it. We can approach it fully assured and convicted. Uh, and when we do this, we are well primed to look to Jesus. Uh, when, we, when we can affirm there's a God and he created me, then the next logical question is how do I where do I stand with him? Like, who is he? Uh, what am I to him? Um, what was I created for? Uh, having understood this, having become assured of it and convicted through faith, we are primed to look to Jesus. And, of course, if you reject uh, that the world was created by the word of God, then the rest of chapter 11 is going to be incredibly uncompelling to you. <laughs> I mean, certainly, if you don't think there is a God, uh, then the accomplishments of God through faith will be uh, relatively meaningless to you if you reject it. Uh, but that is the challenge I leave you with. Uh, God has spoken to us. He has revealed himself to us in his word. That's a claim you also have to accept by faith. You are completely responsible for how you respond to his revelation of himself. And I would urge you not to treat it like a wager or to put it off until you have more time to think about it. Like, think about this. Like, God has revealed himself to us. It seems like a, a pretty important, like, I, don't, I feel like econ test comes after uh, who is God. <laughs> and so if you are unassured, unconvicted, unsure um, of God, then that's certainly the challenge that God's word has for you tonight. Like, like, like deal with that. Like, you are responsible for the, for the fact that God has revealed himself to us in his word. It's not something we put off uh, or want to mess around with or wager um, with. We are responsible for how we respond to that. He has revealed himself to us because of his great love for us, 
we would be doomed, literally, without it. We would suffer hell. We would separate it from him, and there would be no injustice on God's part. We are the offenders. We need atoned for. Uh, and we were stumbling around, groping in the darkness, absent from God's self-revelation in his word. Um, so because of his love, so that we wouldn't have to suffer hell because of our sin, but could instead become recipients through faith of the, of the forgiveness he purchased for us through Jesus' death, heirs of eternal life with him in his resurrection. Like We can repent uh, of our sins and place our faith in Jesus now. It's not a, it's not a decision card type thing. Uh, your faith is, is something you are responsible for, and I certainly want you to share that with people tonight. And so uh, I want to invite you to that. Grapple with that. Have you um, accepted the testimony of God concerning himself? Do you accept, do you believe in God's word, and are you willing uh, to, um, not to wager, is this the most logical way to live my life, but are you willing to, to put it all out there, to suffer all things, to endure all things, being, sure, uh, being assured and convicted that, uh, God is not only real, uh, but that he is good and that his glory is worth living for and that we are created for him and we are redeemed to him through Jesus. I want it to be said of us, it says in chapter 10, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We have the mercy tonight of hearing God speak to us in his word today. Whether we have never believed in Jesus until tonight or whether we have grown sluggish, dull of hearing, and need to be encouraged to endure, we can still respond in the full substantiating assurance and conviction of faith by fixing our eyes on Jesus. I want to invite the band up now. Uh, As they come up, I want to close uh, with Jesus's words. This is a parable uh, that's become known as the parable of the persistent widow. I just want this to to ring in our ears and our hearts as as we sing. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8 says this, And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth?